it's time to hit the brakes. Welcome to Swerve South. I'm Jamie Harker. I'm the director of the Sarah Isom Center for Women and Gender Studies at the University of Mississippi. And I'm here with my associate director, Teresa Starkey. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Welcome back. We hope you had a good break. Um, One of the things we wanted to talk about today, we got in this conversation because Teresa had just written a really cool piece about watching films in her youth. Some of the films she wasn't allowed to go see. And I'll have you talk about that in a minute, Teresa. Um, But we got into this whole conversation in the office about sort of the opposite of our girl power conversation, which is movies and television we saw that terrified us. Mm -hmm. Terrified us specifically as young women. And I want to talk a little bit about our pop culture's obsession with women's terror Mm. and how it affected us and thinking a little bit about what that means in terms of analyzing or making sense of pop culture. There's the empowering version of pop culture and then there's the debilitating version of pop culture. And we want to talk a little bit about That's our experience right. with that. That's right. Debilitating, scarring. Um, Traumatizing. Fetal position. <laughs> uh, encounter. We're, we're skipping ahead to the end. Yeah. Now. Okay. Um, so if you don't mind, why don't you start and tell me about that movie we started talking about um, that freaked you out so much when you were yeah, younger. Yeah. And I, you're right, Jamie. I've just, I just uh, have a piece coming out. Um, that Bill Boyle uh, is put into a collection. So um, I'll encourage people to read it when it's out there, but I'll give a little bit of snippet about what's one of the things that I discuss is this movie that was from the early 80s, and it had uh, Morgan Fairchild in it. And I think maybe 1982, The the Seduction. But it was a glossy exploitation thriller she plays um, an up-and-coming journalist, and uh, she's being stalked So, uh, by Andrew Stevens. So the movie uh, shows this career woman on the rise, um, which is very exciting, and she's, you know, a go-getter. But at that very same time as she's the go-getter, right, she's being circled around by a predator who's taking pictures and obsessed. And there's this moment where she's having, uh, I feel like such an old person when I say this, she's having intimacy. <laughs> she's having intimacy with her lover, and uh, right at this moment... And In a hot imagine, tub, we have to mention No, this. that's right, which also, by the way, is very, very 19... Thank you, Jamie. <laughs> it's very 1980s, very 1980s. Um, you're going to have one, you're going to party there. I never did, but... Anyway, yeah, it's a social marker of status. So they're in the, they're in a hot tub, and um, her lover is uh, murdered. But it's that, in coitus. So in the that's midst right, that's of right, having that's sex right. at the moment of climax, that's right. He is shot at long range, and so like well, he's he's stabbed. He's so stabbed. it's that's not even really that, that's even yeah that's even more you know because uh, you it's it's. It's like he's like it's like Andrew Stevens, not only a nut job, but he had been practicing his knife throwing skills at like a carnival. Who knows? Who knows how he was um, refining his technique for murder? But yes, that moment totally perfectly placed. Yes, yes, totally. So from the French call the little death <laughs> to the big death in the same moment. In case you had any problem linking sex and death, yeah, there you are. Yeah, that's Twat. right. 
That's right. You know, a little bit of Eros and Thanatos there. So, you know, love and violence side by side, life and death drive. Was he a cameraman? Who's that? The guy, the stalker. He 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 was taking photographs. But he wasn't like paid to be. I to can't remember honestly. But, so you've but got yes, like yes. the the but photograph he's, he's and the voyeurism right, and right, like all right. of this is like about celebrity culture, but about fixing her image and the way she has control of her well, image. It's very much about voyeurism, right? Which is also the idea of what does it mean to see or watch someone through the killer's eyes, and so that so there's this implication that you as an audience member are transgressing and looking at what he shouldn't be looking at, which when I'm a kid, I know I shouldn't be looking, but then I also, by the way, you know, um, had snuck into that movie. So there's this double layer of, like, transgression there for me, sneaking into the movie, not knowing that I shouldn't be there, and then watching this moment, um, and how did you refer to it? Coitus? Yes. Yes, see? Yeah, intimacy. I'm here for you. (laughs) Thank you. For euphemisms. So that so that very much marked me, and when I was talking to you, and, um, and you had read the piece that I just written that we're referring to that that moment, I was surprised that you had actually seen that movie because it was so embedded and imprinted in my imagination that it made such a mark on me. Uh, what did it lead? Because that's what I want to talk right, about. Right. Well, the the idea is that suddenly there's this physical contact that's happening, and and um, there's bubbles and there's music and there's candles and there's romance and she's got lots of lip gloss on and and, she's, and her hair is and perfect it, in that right, big 80s hair right. way and she's happy and then though you though though you know I had I don't think I'd read Judy Bloom yet but um yeah so she's happy and I'm not quite understanding what's going on beneath the bubbles right so there's all this like mystery that's there for me as well but somehow her happiness is interrupted right and uh, there's a there's a consequence to this. Okay. There's that's a what consequence. I was. So is the it's, implication is that because that's right. she has sex. That's right. In this public trashy way. That's right. That there that is the punishment. That's right. Even though you could be doing it in the privacy of your backyard, who knows who's watching you? That's right. Um, yeah. So she had, tr- yeah, there was the element of, yeah. So you've got this woman who seems to be building an independent life, That's and the whole purpose of the movie is to show how she can be reduced to a terrified mess mm-hmm. by the stalking man. Now, it's interesting, though. Are we meant to identify with the stalker? Well, I believe that in that moment, and at least in terms of the cinematic technique, that is one of the things, right? We're, we're seeing we are, it from his we're perspective. We're seeing it from his perspective. That's right. And so she is the object, right, of our gaze, and we're looking. Um, so, yeah, I do think there's that way. Did right? you identify with her or with the stalker? I would say that, that, that in that moment there's the slippage, right, mm-hmm. that you know that you're watching through his eyes and you feel like you know he shouldn't be looking. And as I said, I already felt guilty for looking. But then also, too, there is that terror that she feels that is identifiable as well. So I feel like there's that duality of that moment that perhaps, right, is this element of a gendered sort of viewing that happens. Right. So, again, you are the expert on film theory. Forgive me as I terribly reduce this in a way that we're horrified. No, no, no. Theorists, but... You've got the male gaze. That's right. Right? Um, which is ostensibly behind the camera. Mm-hmm. And that there is a pleasure in women's terror. That's I right. I think. And, and there, I, I want us to talk about how many movies there are like this in which watching women's terror 
is part of the voyeuristic thrill, even if you're meant somewhere to also condemn it. Um, and I wonder if male viewers are also identifying with a woman, but most women I know, even if they're encouraged to identify with the perpetrator, are identifying with the victim, right? Are identifying potentially with her sense of helplessness mm -hmm. and fear and shame, but also this, the way that those narratives structurally seem to indicate that they deserve what they get, right? Or that if they, they were the wrong kind of woman. I mean, this is a classic in horror movies. If you've seen Scream, it's playing with that idea. If you have sex, that means you're going to be the next mm -hmm. victim, right? That you are then damaged goods or marked in a particular way. Um, I saw that movie on television later, if you can believe it. They probably cut out some of the oh, scarier scenes. I'm but sure that they It was they equally terrifying for yeah. a very sheltered Mormon girl yeah, yeah. like in, in her teens to see that. Also, her name was spelled exactly the way mine was, which was not helpful at all. Though there's nothing else in no other way in my life Morgan Fairchild. I don't have the big blonde hair. I don't yeah. have the lip gloss. Yeah. I never had any of that. Yeah. Um, but it was really terrifying. But what's interesting is how many narratives have we consumed over the course of our lives that have essentially that plot, mm -hmm. that terrified woman um, and men's pleasure in their terror and implicitly the narrative, the cinematic narrative, or sometimes the written narrative, which is encouraging both the voyeuristic thrill, the prurient judgment, and in some ways, no matter who's doing it, you're judging the woman for getting harmed or, or hurt, more so than the person who's perpetrating it. I'll give you the one that freaked me out in my early 20s, which was Silence of the Lambs. Did you ever see that? Yes, I did, Jamie. Silence of the Lambs. I used to get up and go early to school, and I, every morning I had to scrape my car because I was living in Utah, and I was terrified of some dude in a van driving up when I was by myself outside at 5 a.m., and quite literally, I looked over my shoulder every moment for months, yeah. right, just watching that movie. And that's a similar movie, right, which is ostensibly you've got the sort of feminist or as pitched as a feminist protagonist, but in fact she is both terrorized by the serial killer and the final famous scene when we're watching through his eyes when he's wearing one of those like night vision goggles and so mm -hmm. we're seeing her in the dark unable to see and his view so again encouraged mm -hmm. to see from his perspective mm -hmm. but also the manipulations of her by um, the doctor who is the imprisoned serial killer who is she has to go to for help on this that's right quid pro quo right and his Clarice. escape and it lends it ends with his escape and him talking to her and her kind of terrified voice um there's lots wrong with that movie okay i mean the homophobia of that movie the transphobia of that movie the suggestion that a man who identifies as trans wants to kill and skin women that's right is so i mean there were there were protests rightfully so about the problems of that but the kind of garden variety let's let's put you know seemingly strong women in peril and and enjoy their fear and vulnerability i think is is of a piece with a lot of these narratives and they have not gone away let's be honest well i think this is something that i always find interesting and i have to admit that it's also uh, a guilty pleasure and I watch it, and I think about these. I, I, I watch Lifetime and the Wii Network and Lifetime movies, and they also uh, delve into these narratives uh, that the world is a dangerous place for women. And I think about it, of course, these are, these are the titles that I'm about to suggest, right, are titles that are similar to the ones, right, with Lifetime movies, Deadly Neighbor, right? Uh, <laughs> Uh, deadly Teacher, um, 
right? Sinful mother, what, however you want to frame them, right? It, the, there's already that element. There's an element of terror there, and it generally is situating itself in the home. Either the terror is coming from within the home or it's outside, right, coming in. Either way, right? It's 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 a terrifying thing, and it could be that suddenly there's the new divorcee um, living with her kids in a gated community, and um, Mr. Wright moves in next door, and he seems charming, and then suddenly it turns out that he's actually a polygamist, and he has eight bodies in the um, deep freezer in his basement, right? So suddenly, so, so there are those kinds of of, of movies that are out there, right? Or or it's the woman who somehow is the seductress of the uh, husband who's working in the office and that she's a threat to right to the family. So so in the in that way, right, that 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 narrative also is framing, right, the domestic space or the world for women in these complicated ways. And um, which is also right problematic uh and but i that those are also coming out of a long history right of like this kind of gothic narrative right there's the horror also there uh but as i now said they i call it trauma porn trauma well right and so but but you can you know their lifetime movies will do their you know marathons um oh yeah at any given moment you can Right, you turn can on the television. You, you, can, you can you can tune into the terror. You can right? watch it all day. That's right. So you can right. imagine a version of these narrators being feminists. Mm-hmm. That is, look at what a toxically violent culture women must inhabit, and therefore leading to a sense of empowerment. Mm-hmm. But oddly enough, these are rarely those stories. Mm-hmm. And when they become those stories, um, I'm thinking about the Susan Sarandon movie. Why am I blanking out? You know the famous one where they go on the run because when uh, oh Thelma and Louise Thelma and Louise, everyone was talking about Thelma and Louise and but they drive off it, a cliff. What, right, what does it mean? <laughs> and is it too violent? And like I'm like, you're asking if this movie's too violent? Yeah. Have you watched the last fifty best-selling movies in which women's terror is the center of right? When we are we take women's terrorizing for granted in these movies in certain ways. When you write the narrative in which there's a critique of it, then you're being man-hating and unfair. But when we sort of inhabit the kind of misogyny that animates these stories, we hardly even notice it anymore, right? That just seems of a piece. Um, and that's what I think is so puzzling about these movies. And, and you can frame it as part of a larger backlash against the feminist movement, mm-hmm. taking career women, taking divorcees, taking the the dangerous so it's just never the man's fault right think about jagged edge or right well actually i'm gonna i'm gonna stop you right there and say jamie that if anybody hasn't done this um it's a good scholarly pitch right now the vulnerability of michael douglas in all of these movies that there's an anthology or a book there that's exactly right oh yeah close movie and then there's the one uh, Michael Douglas in the Michael, 80s du- Michael Douglas in the is like is, backlash is, 101. Well, it's very it's vulnerable ma- it's masculinity in crisis and the world is actually in this context a dangerous place for him and albeit it is a dangerous p- place because there are women um either women who are perceived unhinged or women in power who are abusing their power, right? And right. uh and and threatening his security, masculinity and domestic space. And it's cetera, never his fault yeah. either, so. right? So like this and that this is a really interesting phenomenon. So this is the other side of like the media consumption and the kind of narratives that we take in as air 
and don't even notice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about this earlier. I hit a certain point about 10 years ago when there were all these police procedurals about serial killers. And every single one, like every week, it was a woman being held, terrorized, tortured, and they were trying to find the killer. And I thought, you know how many thousands of hours I have seen mm-hmm. of women's terror? And I just said, I am full up. I can't watch this stuff anymore. I can't do it. Even if it's resolved or there's some male hero coming in to save them from the bad man, um, the fact that we think this is acceptable entertainment to watch women's terror over and over, which can leave so many women terrified of the world, right? Um, Terrified to move out. Also, but looking for the wrong monsters. Mm -hmm. That is, it's rarely the anonymous stalker you don't know. It's usually someone you love Mm -hmm. in your home who's going to harm you, right? Like relationship violence, family violence is the much more likely place where that happens, but that is a much more disruptive tale. And that also doesn't implicitly let you blame, which we always seem to do, the woman for being there. Um, what do we make of this? I mean, once once I see it, it's hard for me to unsee it. And yeah. I, I, can't, I get so tired of how unimaginative we are in terms of the narratives we want to circulate. I'm pondering. I'm pondering. pondering. I'm you pondering. know, so this is the other side of, you know, have we gone too far? I'm like, well, when you look at the movies, we haven't really moved far at all from these places. I mean, I'm thinking all the way back to uh, Faulkner's Sanctuary, um, which right. is, you know, Temple Drake. Um, and it was this scandalous book that came out in 1929 about the old Miss sorority girl gone bad. Um, and I read the novel. And it is an appalling novel, and it is appalling in that this young woman, I'd always read it as sort of the girl gone wild. When you read it, it's a succession of men who leave her vulnerable and helpless, but she still is the one who gets blamed. And it's because she was out drinking or she was being a bad girl or she skipped you know, going to the football games to go out. And so it starts with her boyfriend going to find bootleg liquor and driving out into the woods, and his car breaks down. And he's there with with Temple, and there are all these predatory men everywhere around there. And they fall asleep, and he wakes up in the morning, and he leaves her there, walks away and leaves her alone. Um, and there's this circulating violence of at least three men planning to assault her. The man who eventually does does so, you know, notoriously with a bottle, right? With a, with, with um, I believe it's a bottle. It's a, with a foreign object, which is mm-hmm. supposed to be the salacious thing about it, as opposed to ordinary rape, which I suppose would not be as terrifying, though that seems ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And you don't get to see that scene for a long time. And then the next thing you know, this man who was a violent criminal, Popeye, has deposited her at a whorehouse, right? A house of prostitution in Memphis. And this supposedly good guy who's investigating it, he's concerned because another man has been accused of her rape and he wants to clear his name, mm-hmm. though that man was about to rape her and would have given the opportunity. He finds Temple, learns her story, leaves her at the house of prostitution mm-hmm. because somehow she's damaged goods and therefore isn't important. And everything about this story, I, the more I hear about it, the more I'm like, what is wrong with all these people, right? Well, I think one of the things that you're that's coming out, and we and this was touched on earlier, Jamie, when you said, how is it that there are these narratives that are circulated, right, repackaged, rearticulated, and and even in this one, it's the it's the idea of the fallen woman, 
right? The as fallen you said, woman. The fallen woman. You just right. She, suddenly, she's discovered right in this space, or she got to this space, and um, somehow she's damaged, or she's so she's, she's no depicted as some she's kind no, of crazy nymphomaniac. She's no longer right. you know, that, yeah. So she can't be saved because she wants to be there. And like, and you know, when I I taught that novel in a summer class one time, and the women, almost all, I think all of them, identified with her. her like those moments of her terror, and her sense of helplessness are, they're gripping. I mean, in that way that Faulkner can do, um, they're terrifying. Um, a lot of the men in that class seemed to voyeuristically enjoy those. Didn't seem to be didn't identify with her. Thought she deserved it. I I heard them like you calling her a whore, in really easy ways. And I had to say, I want you to consider how easily that word is rolling off your tongue and why that is, mm-hmm. right? And what's happening here. Um, and it w- it really made me understand. I think that there can be very differently gendered ways of consuming these narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, that I have to read that novel as an indictment of patriarchy because I can't read it otherwise, right? Um, that it is about the creation of whores for the, you know, the good good women and whores and the way you turn good women against the whores, mm-hmm. all of which to hide the really bad behavior of all the men mm-hmm. in this patriarchal system, where what concerns them is the bootlegger who might be falsely accused, in which she does testify against another man because of her terror of the one who actually harmed her. Um, and that's supposed to be the tragedy, not the fact that she has been broken. There's a there's two really interesting scenes in that novel. One is when she sees the little poodles owned by the madam and recognizes herself in them, that she has also been created as um, adornments, as, as beautiful, helpless creatures who can't take care of themselves and then are blamed for not being able to. The other is when they talk to her about it and they say, oh, honey, I, cr- I bled for three weeks my first time. It's okay. Like the, 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 for them, love and sex is completely wrapped up in violence mm-hmm. and taking. So they cannot recognize anything different in her experience than theirs because that's what they're, all of their experience has been. That's the most chilling part of the entire novel for me. Um, and there's a way that Faulkner can recognize that. I don't know that. A lot of the men who read that book read it that way, but I have to read it that way because it is the most horrifying critique of the creation of horrors for the benefit of the, of the powerful in charge to sort of use women and discard them as they will mm-hmm. that I've ever read. And I'm, I'm, I've seen a version of that circulating ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, that's the other side of this critique. Once you start to see those patterns of how patriarchal subordination works and how we use these narratives to naturalize them in our minds. It's hard to unsee them, but what can be distressing is just critiquing it doesn't seem to change them, mm-hmm. right? Right. That we keep circulating them, and, and every time there's an attempt to construct an alternative identity of power for women, they are sucked back into these narratives. And I think back to all those, those 80s punk women we love so much. I mean, they were almost uniformly constructed as dangerous, as hypersexual, as as not normal, right? As not proper role models. Um, the the press loved to circulate stories about excesses and abuse that were framed differently than male stars, where that was seen as normal, right? Um, pathologizing if they were too too promiscuous, right? And all the things they did. It's it's a really um, the double standard continues to function in those. And it's very difficult to circulate them. They're, they're transgressive, but they're also contained in this larger narrative. There's a reason that, that Deborah Harry was the most popular of them all, because she was the most glam, she was the most normative in terms of femininity. Um, 
and this, you know, even now, like, she gets so many questions about, has she had cosmetic surgery? It's like she's a beautiful woman and there's a suspicion about that. And, like, on the one hand, you want to critique them if they don't fit normative standards of beauty. But then you want to critique them for going out of the way to conform to them in various ways. Um, it's a, it's a, for me, that is the thing about doing pop culture critique. That's the other side of this, which is how even now with all the alternatives and possibilities, we circulate such a narrow run of stories about possibilities. That's, that's right. Well, okay. This is something and now, now I, now I'm segueing some in another direction, but bear with me, Jamie, because I think you'll go here with me. I'm thinking about when you're talking about these narratives, and, and right now we've been talking about thinking about gender and violence, right, or the way that violence and sex, like these problematic um, intersections, right, in terms of representation. But I also think that, and so this is dealing with representations of women, and I would like to think about visibility, who's visible when and who becomes invisible, right? And all of these are markers of age, Right, I think too, and the reason I'm bringing this up that uh, we had a conversation recently about the Keanu Reeves uh, brouhaha in which he was at on a red carpet and he was um, with uh, a woman that he's actually been friends with for years and years, who's an artist, and uh, the uh, the crazy social media conversation, and then um, and also in uh, like celebrity gossip was the fact that she was an old she was an older woman and actually she wasn't older I think she might be five years younger than him but the fact that suddenly there are these spaces right she's where, got where, gray hair she oh my has God. gray hair and so the and so suddenly we have these narratives of when women appear or disappear right and so in, in this context it was almost as if the magical unicorn had appeared on the um, red carpet. Uh, next to Keanu Reeves, right, the older woman who's actually um, embracing, right, her gray hair, and and, and turns out, as I get, again, right, that she's younger, but so suddenly there's this idea that these women exist, and it was really interesting to read some of the comments in newspaper um, things that were being written, and and in passing, there was one woman who wrote that I can I can embrace my gray now thanks to her, and I'm like. Really? What? That's what you needed? Well, no, right. So, so suddenly, but but the but the thing that's interesting to me is that suddenly, right, that she's this interesting figure that there are only certain moments or certain images of women who are, right, of a certain age that appear or materialize in culture that become our touchstone or touch points, right? And so suddenly here was a new woman who, who, who seemed to be actually the everyday woman. Um, and that just seemed like such a phenomenon. And by the way, nobody was talking about the shoes that Keanu Reeves was wearing um, with his tuxedo. To me, that was really the real point of conversation. It's not who he had on his arm, um, but what he was wearing on his feet. What was he wearing on his feet? They look like mountain boots, you know. And I, I, hey, and I'm all about the comfort. As you know, for the past month, I've been doing nothing but wearing shoes that look like house slippers. But we support this. Thank you. But <laughs> but but still, I was like, come on, Keanu, what's on your feet? It makes me think of that B-52 song. What's that on your head? A wig. Actually, Keanu, what's on your feet? Right. <laughs> what I thought was funny about that, um, two things. One is that the story was still all about Keanu. Isn't he so amazing after he's been mourning? Oh, that's true. That's right. right. Look yes, at how he right. is dating an older woman. Like it's all. It's not about who she is, but about yeah. this shows his superiority. He's so open right which i think is which tells you how accustomed we are to seeing 
older men with much younger women yeah. that we don't see as strange. The other thing I think is funny is people who reported he was there with Helen Mirren it's like older woman with gray hair. No, that's what I, I meant. I can only think of one. Must be Helen no, Mirren. That's, that's what I meant. That the idea that there are only certain images, right, of older women who are visible to us, and that again, that just goes to show why people thought it was Helen Mirren, right, because she seems to be an acceptable image, right, of a woman who is aging in a specific way. The, the, we make exceptions in tokens, but in general. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. No, and that's a really interesting question. I can't tell you how many essays I've read recently about women who are bemoaning how they've suddenly become invisible. And what they mean by invisible is no longer seen as desirable sex objects to men. Um, and I, there's something unbearably sad to me about these essays that women who are smart and talented and have careers and have lives in all these ways still perceive their worth to be about the anonymous attention they get from men they don't even know. Um, as a lesbian who's outside of this heterosexual exchange, I find the whole thing kind of mystifying and astonishing. Um, as a lesbian, I've always kind of been invisible outside of these modes, and I like it that way. I don't really want to be in those modes because they, you know, let's go back to the seduction. They're creepy. I'm like, ooh, don't want to be there. Um, but it's really interesting to me how much we have, women have still, even who are otherwise liberated or have other possibilities, have put those things in their heads from those narratives mm -hmm. that their worth depends on whether they get a chili pepper on Rate My Professors, for example, right? Whether they get whistled at by anonymous strangers as they go through, whether they can talk their way out of a ticket. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just, you know, amazing the way that you're constantly putting your attention to this sort of anonymous space of detractors or admirers um, in a way that we don't, I think, encourage young men to perceive their worth as being anonymous mm -hmm. appreciation. Um, to the same degree, and it's it's a really it's a really troubling moment, despite all the work and all the critique, that that is has still has to grip culturally. Um, that we still are having this conversation about women politicians and you know the constant double standards and the constant sort of movement as we go. Um, this has turned out to be a rather depressing conversation. I'm sorry about that. Ah, well, <laughs> we're not finding like the silver lining. But what I think it shows is when you start to apply these lenses, you start to notice these deep structural problems that, you know, one girl power movie or song isn't necessarily going to undo and, and how you have to be so vigilant because that stuff is, is put so deeply into your sense of culture that it seems natural. Well, okay. And I think, um, yes, I, I think we have been on the, um, um, the down downward turn but I but I also think that uh, I think what's come out of this is the idea the why why we study what we study or why we ask the questions that we ask why is it important to engage with popular culture why is it important to think of it as a site in which we as a community and society right are constantly sort of inundated with and in that inundation we are confronting right certain kind of narratives and scripts that get repeated or replayed until if until the narrative perhaps is sort of ruptured right or or called out but these these stories are in circulation and they and they have the power to impress themselves on us um, and mark us in certain ways and I think you and I have both made that clear 
by the fact that we watched the seduction and you were in L.A. <laughs> or California, and I'm in a small town in Georgia in Cartersville, yet we both watched the same film and had the same sort of horrifying kind of response. So the tangible, right, feeling or visceral response or, or the way that movies or films such as that um, can stay with us right and so I think that in itself is like yes we've been I'm sorry we've been we've been we've been kind of uh you know like I said Jay you're right Jamie oh man we've been so serious (laughs) but in this seriousness right that that comes this kind of like questioning and um, also what happens when you start having a conversation right about the things that have uh, marked you in certain ways and you realize that perhaps as a young woman that you're not alone Right. That, hey, we were on two the opposite sides of the country, but we both had experienced the same thing or same feeling in watching this movie. So it's an interesting thing that there is perhaps something there in terms of reception. In, in classic consciousness raising mode, that was called the aha moment. When you recognize uh-huh. that your individual experience is part That's of a right. larger right. global That's experience, right. the Me right. Too is absolutely that same moment of recognizing that. So perhaps that, yeah. sometimes when you're watching a movie and you're thinking its narrative is questionable and you're like, what the boop? Maybe you're not the only one that's sitting there in the dark, right? Whether or not you snuck into the movie or you paid your money or now that perhaps, you know, we're in a new generation, then um, uh, you're streaming it on whatever right mobile device you might have, that uh, the way in which you're interacting and consuming this, right, you might not be alone in the questions, right, that it makes you ask. And we're also in this really democratic moment when there are, it's easier to get involved in media than ever before That's to create right. your own story. So let's take advantage of this and actually create some new narratives and some new possibilities and tell a story that isn't a rehash of Sanctuary. Yeah. Or the or seduction. Or Sanctuary and then move on. <laughs> and let's just leave seduction in the archive, shall we? All right. That's a good closer. Thanks, Teresa. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Swerve South! Hey, hey, hey! Swerve South is a production of the Sarah Isom Center for Women and Gender Studies with support from the Southern Documentary Project, music and engineering by Tyler Keith.